Just a quick update before we begin. Thanks to Audible, History of the Marine Corps can now give you a free audiobook. Audible is known for its tens of thousands of selections, and I use it all the time for myself and for some of the reference material we use on the show. In the spirit of transparency, History of the Marine Corps receives a kickback for everyone who signs up, but the author or the publisher do not sponsor me. Every recommendation is a book I have personally read or listened to. I'll include my suggestion at the end of the episode, but don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This offer is available to any of the tens of thousands of audiobooks offered by Audible. And whether you decide to continue your membership, this book is yours to keep forever. Visit audibletrial.com slash marine history for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Now on to the show. Welcome to episode 93 of History of the Marine Corps, the Meuse-Argonne Campaign. This is the last and most significant battle U.S. troops have ever fought. We discussed the preparation leading up to the battle, some of the challenges faced by both U.S. and German troops, and how both sides handled the armistice when they received the news. We end the episode with a few statistics about the war. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. After the Marines captured the hill at Blancmont, the 2nd Division was in dire straits and needed relief. The 36th American Division, attached to the French 4th Army, sent its 71st Brigade to take over the entire front on October 6th. Lejeune wrote back to the Assistant Commandant of the Marine Corps, Colonel Charles Long, and summarized the battle. Although he mentioned how proud he was of how the Marine Brigade did, he added, quote, There isn't much left of the original crowd, unquote. He wasn't kidding. 41 officers and 685 enlisted died during that battle, and 162 officers and close to 3,500 enlisted were wounded. There were six officers and 579 enlisted who were just missing. For the Marine sacrifice, the French Army awarded the 5th and 6th Regiment with their third citation of the Croix de Guerre, which is still recognized in the Marine Corps through the French Forager and is worn by those regiments today. The 6th Machine Gun Battalion also received the Croix de Guerre, but authorization to wear the French Forager was discontinued immediately after World War I. Lejeune was awarded as well, and he was named a commander of the French Legion of Honor. By October 13th, the Germans retreated and formed a new line. The rest of the Allied forces were planning to hit hard, and the speed at which the war went on increased significantly. Every Allied force took the offensive. The American First Army had more than a million men on a front that stretched more than 80 miles. The infantry of the 36th Division, combined with the artillery units, followed the Germans to their new location. The remaining infantry brigades of the 2nd Division were sent to the rear so they could rest and reorganize. Replacements were taken from the 1st Marine Training Regiment. Plans were made to have the 4th Brigade join the U.S. 1st Army in the Argonne. And on the 25th, 
the 4th Marines traveled in trucks and on foot to Le Islet. Once they arrived, the two units marched as one towards the most significant battle U.S. troops have ever fought. The United States 1st Army launched their attack on September 26th in two phases. The first phase of the attack forced the Germans to retreat six miles. As the German defensive line adapted to the Americans' offensive stance, they started to put up more of a resistance. Towards the end of September, the Army's progress was small, but they still managed to push the Germans back. U.S. troops took the eastern part of the Americans' front, otherwise known as the Hindenburg Line, but the Germans were still putting up a good fight on the western half. The second phase of the attack would focus on the Germans' remaining portion of the line. Lejeune moved his headquarters to the eastern edge of the Argonne Forest on October 27th. He described the town, quote, Charpentry, the new capital city of the 2nd Division, was a sight to behold. It was situated in a sea of mud. It was a ruined town, having been a target for German artillery since the day it was wrested from German hands by the Americans. Division headquarters occupied a two-story building. It was nearly a complete wreck and promised to fall down as soon as it was hit again, unquote. The 2nd Division was assigned to the 5th Corps for the attack, which began on November 1st and continued until the war's end. For the first time before a major attack, the division was given multiple days to rest and prepare for battle. The 2nd Division was assigned the left sector of the Corps. The 80th Division supported them on its left flank, and the 89th Division on its right. The Army carefully planned out artillery support to help with the upcoming battle. Over 300 artillery pieces would support U.S. troops for this engagement, consisting of the 1st, 2nd, and 42nd artillery brigades, and smaller guns from the Marines and Army artillery. On top of the battery, 15 light tanks were provided to help the infantry in their assault. U.S. Army Major General Charles Summerall had extensive experience as an artillery brigade commander. During World War I, Allied Forces artillery dogma stated that the number of guns used during the battle was determined by the linear distance being attacked or held. Summerall had a different view. He proposed that the number of artilleries used shouldn't be determined by the lineal front, but by the number of troops supported. British and French artillerymen found this entertaining, but they didn't support his theory. Summerall let the results speak for themselves. About six months before this battle, he tested his hypothesis by directing artillery fire where troops wanted it. His tactics worked well, and he is credited with perfecting the rolling barrage, and he would deploy artillery in the same manner during this battle. Summerall promised Lejeune a massive concentration of artillery to support the 2nd Division. In return, he wanted a guarantee that the objectives on the first day of battle would be accomplished. Lejeune gave him his word that it would be done, but he added the caveat that the 89th Division would need to protect his flank for this to happen. Major General William Wright, commanding officer of the 89th, ensured Lejeune that his men would give him the protection he needed. Before the battle kicked off, Lejeune and Summerall visited every one of the 12 infantry battalions and spoke with the men. While Lejeune gave words of encouragement, 
Summerall had a different approach, and he threatened to relieve every field-grade officer if the Marine Brigade failed to achieve its objective. Lejeune gave his guarantee that all officers of the 2nd Division would carry out their duties. The plan was for the division to drive a wedge deep into the enemy's position. The 4th Brigade, with the 23rd Infantry attached, would take the lead on the first day, and the 3rd Brigade would leapfrog into the lead when they received their orders. Once the division captured the woods, the 23rd would join the 3rd Brigade and the 4th Brigade would take the responsibility of the entire division front. At this point of the war, the German army's morale was extremely low. The constant attacks from the Allied forces, the slow starvation of the German people, and the Allied propaganda campaigns within Germany took a toll on them mentally and physically. They planned to withdraw from France altogether and reassemble at the Antwerp-Meuse line, 25 miles from their current location. The Germans also lost their partners, and due to successful attacks by Allied forces, Bulgaria, Turkey, and Austria-Hungary were forced out of the war. German general Erich Ludendorff, part of the German army's great general staff and in charge of the development of the Schlieffen Plan, was forced to resign by German Emperor Wilhelm II on October 27th. Two days later, the German Navy mutinied. To top this off, the size of German regiments were now the same size as U.S. battalions. Their battalions were the size of companies and companies the size of platoons. Most Germans fighting on the front lines knew this war was over. Their only strong defense was their artillery, commanded by Colonel George Bruce Mueller. He faced off against Marines at Bella Woods and his artillery had a devastating impact on the Corps. The Marines faced the German 41st Division, which they met during Blancmont. The attack commenced on November 1st with three artillery brigades bombarding enemy lines for two hours, and it was immediately followed by a standing barrage of 10 minutes. Once those 10 minutes were up, the rolling barrage would continue at the rate of 100 meters every four minutes on favorable ground, and every eight minutes on rough terrain. For this battle, the United States used every machine gun in the 2nd Division, with the exception of two companies. This was over 250 guns. The Marine Brigade led the attack with the 5th Marines on the right, and the 6th taking the left. They advanced in columns of battalions. The artillery was highly effective during the battle, and it devastated the German defense. Quote, the fire was so intense, particularly in its initial stages, that scarcely a square foot of ground in the enemy's frontline area was left unturned by bursting shells. Unquote. One five and one six led the assault, followed closely by two five and three five on the right, and two six and three six on the left. The 18th Company of the 5th Marines was responsible for communicating with the 89th Division on the right. The 95th Company of the 6th Marines and Golf Company of the 319th Infantry, along with two machine gun platoons, were responsible for communication with the 1st and 5th Corps to the left. To help with this battle, the Marines had with them some of the first Browning automatic rifles delivered at the end of October. This weapon would become one of the Marines' favorites for the next four decades. 
German artillery focused on assembly points with high explosives and poison gas shells. This strategy hit 1-6 hard, and they lost 100 Marines before the battle even started. German artillery inflicted more casualties on the first day of fighting than all of the other German efforts combined for this battle. The savior of the six Marines was the U.S. artillery, which targeted Bruce Mueller's batteries, effectively taking them out of the equation. The Marines advanced with perfection. They learned to stay close behind the rolling artillery barrage, even though it meant that there would be a few casualties from rounds that fell short. The German main line of resistance was overrun after a few skirmishes. Captain Macon Overton was considered, quote, one of the most gallant young officers of the Marine Corps, unquote. The 28-year-old Marine commanded his company since Bella Wood, and he led his men into this battle. He and his Marines took out five German machine gun nests in the morning. He was shot and killed when guiding a tank towards the sixth machine gun nest. But Overton's death wasn't in vain, and his actions that day helped 1-6 reach their objective. The first goal had been accomplished by 8 a.m., two and a half hours after the start of the battle. 2-5 and 3-6 passed the main line and took the lead. 3-6 advanced relatively quickly and only faced light resistance. Tanks helped 3-6 overrun German lines, and as a result, about 100 Germans surrendered. 2-5 didn't have it so easy, and they ran into considerable resistance from machine guns, firing out of the windows in Landreville. By noon, 3-5 and 2-6 launched the final phase of the day's attack. Most German positions were overrun by this time, and they faced resistance only from the small German units in the rear. Three hours later, both battalions reached their objective. The division captured several batteries of artillery and 1,700 prisoners. German prisoners were put to work, and they helped carry the wounded back from the battlefield. But despite their success, the Marines didn't have a lot of rest that night. They anticipated and prepared for a counterattack from the Germans. Summerall started the day threatening every field grade officer if they should fail, but ended it with praising the men for their performance. Quote, Your brilliant advance destroyed the last stronghold in the Hinderberg line. Unquote. Although the 89th Division kept Major General William Wright's word of protecting the Marines' right flank, the left side was exposed. The rearmost battalions of the 6th Marines were sent to clear out the woods for added protection. The battalions on the front line sent patrols, and they anticipated some retaliation from the Germans. But that attack never came. The German forces were depleted, and while Marines were bracing for an attack, the Germans were scrounging up men and reorganizing an outpost line in front of the Marines. The tensions were high on both sides throughout the night. The Germans decided to begin withdrawing behind the Meuse as fast as possible the next day to avoid more of these brutal engagements and to develop a new line. The Marines were making plans too. The 3rd Brigade was ordered to take the lead on the second day, but those plans were changed and the advance didn't take place until nightfall. But even though German attacks settled down a bit, the Marines faced a new foe, the Spanish flu. Replacements were brought in to supplement the men who were sick. By 8 p.m. on November 3rd, 
General von der Marwitz received orders to fall back behind the Moose. The 3rd Brigade made considerable progress and advanced seven miles which caused significant challenges for the Germans. The Americans were moving too fast for their own support to keep up. Ammunition ran low and food and water were in short supply. Private Carl Brannan stated, quote, The men were nearly all affected with dysentery from the scantily unfit food and polluted water. We were all weak and exhausted, unquote. The Germans made it across the river on the night of November 5th and 6th, destroying bridges as they crossed. Summerall ordered the 2nd and 89th Divisions to cross the Meuse River. No one thought this was a good idea. Allied forces spent the past six weeks trying to drive the Germans across the Meuse. Even though they were successful, it took a lot out of them, and many of the men were sick with the Spanish flu and exhausted. Supplies were still struggling to find their way to the front lines, and about everyone was aware that an armistice would be issued soon. Crossing the river seemed like a suicide mission. The 4th Brigade was responsible for the infantry part of the mission, and the main crossing for the Marines was planned about one mile northwest of Mouzant. Two more battalions were planned to cross about one mile southwest, near the river's bend. The three battalions of the 6th, 2-5 and 3-5, were ordered to make the main crossing and seize the ridge north of Muzon. The crossing would begin on the 9th. However, Lejeune learned that all the pontoon boats were given to the 89th. The 2nd Engineers were given the task of making four floating footbridges for the 2nd Division. They would also have to float the bridges up the river and assemble them at night. Lejeune asked for the attack to be pushed to the night of November 10th, which was approved. On the 143rd birthday of the Marine Corps, the battalion commanders received their orders for the main attack. However, the time of the attack wasn't clear. The artillery launched way ahead of schedule. It began before the Marines even left their camp and ended before they reached the river. The second engineers began to build their footbridges, but German machine guns and artillery significantly slowed their progress. Many engineers were killed either by German fire or drowning while they were trying to construct the bridge. The Marines standing by witnessed the engineers' bloody assault. As daylight approached, the bridges were still not constructed, and the battalion commanders agreed that there wasn't much to do except head back into the woods before light exposed their position. When they returned to camp, they learned that the armistice was signed and effective at 11 a.m. The Germans increased their artillery fire during the last two hours before the armistice. A few minutes before 11, both sides launched extensive shells at each other. Then silence. Private Mackin stated, quote, Silence laid a pall on everything, unquote. After a few minutes of silence, the Marines broke out in celebration. A German battalion commander who was directly in front of the Marines reported, quote, At 11.15, hostility ceased. Not a shot is fired. Among our men, a quiet, depressed mood and quiet joy, while among the enemy, there is loud manifestation of the joy over the armistice, unquote. But the Marines on the East Bank never received the word of the armistice. They continued to fire every time a German exposed himself. Quote, 
Whenever we saw any Germans, we fired on them, and this continued to about 2.15 in the afternoon on November 11th. I noticed the Germans were not returning our fire, and suddenly, all along the main highway fronting us, there appeared above the embankment German rifles with flags and white handkerchiefs waving. I ordered my men not to fire, and we waited to see what they were going to do. Suddenly, two Germans appeared, and they started walking towards our lines. When they got halfway, I saw one of them undo his pistol belt and throw it to one side. I, therefore, called for a volunteer who could speak German to accompany me, and approached the German who was a captain. Speaking in German, he said he knew he had us surrounded and that we had no communication with the main body of our forces, so he was informing us that an armistice had been signed that morning between the German High Command and the Allied Command. All firing should have stopped at 11 a.m. I had continued to fire on his troops, causing some casualties. He requested that I take his word about the armistice and cease firing on his troops. I informed him that I had heard of a possibility of an armistice, and on returning to my lines, would inform my men that it was an accomplished fact, and we would observe the armistice. I picked up my pistol, which I had thrown to one side. He picked up his, and we both returned to our lines. Unquote. A few minutes later, German soldiers came over the embankment, waving bottles of brandy at the Marines, and they traded drinks for American cigarettes. Captain Cummings stated, quote, One would have thought they were long-lost brothers, unquote. Slowly, the realization of the Great War being over sunk in with the Marines. They built bonfires and sang songs throughout the night. Marines fired their weapons and set off explosions as if it were the 4th of July. And as the night went on, the question started to come up. If the command knew an armistice was coming, why was the decision made to cross the river? 31 men died, and 148 were wounded trying to cross that river. More than 75 were missing and presumed drowned. Even Lejeune questioned this decision, but not publicly. In a private letter to his wife, written on November 11th, he stated, quote, Last night we fought our last battle. To me, it was pitiful for men to go to their death on the evening of peace. Unquote. Since the beginning of this battle on November 1st, the Marine Brigade had 323 killed and 1,109 wounded. The 2nd Division was assigned to the Army of Occupation, and on November 17th, they began their march into the heart of Germany. It was divided into two columns. The 4th Brigade and its supporting artillery took the northern column. The division stretched for nearly 30 miles. For the first three days, the Marines marched through Belgium, and they witnessed the war-torn ruins of villages the Germans burned in 1914. When they crossed the country, they were welcomed with overwhelming gratitude from the French and Belgian people who were under German control for over four years. As they crossed into Luxembourg, the ruins turned into a beautiful countryside. The Luxembourgers greeted the Americans as they passed as well. The column reached Germany on November 23rd, and per the terms of the armistice, they waited here until December 1st. The Marines were in worn and tattered uniforms, and their equipment was in really bad shape. Brigadier General Malin Craig called the 2nd Division an eyesore. 
Lejeune was unhappy with his criticism, and he replied, quote, The 2nd Division has fought, marched, moved by rail or camion, and bivouacked in the woods continuously since March 15th. It has fought five pitched battles, always defeating the enemy, and has rendered service of incalculable value to the Allied cause. In explanation of the present appearance of the division, that it left the battlefield for this march without being refitted with clothing or equipment, and that practically all the men are now wearing the same uniforms that they wore in the battles in the Champagne District and in the recent American offensive. Unquote. After celebrating Thanksgiving on the 28th, the Marines rested, changed into new uniforms, and continued their march on December 1st as scheduled. The Marines stayed with the Army of German Occupation for another seven months. Commanders tried to keep up troops' morale with sports, theatrical shows, professional entertainment, and educational programs. U.S. troops also had a pretty relaxed leave policy, and trains were used as shuttles to transfer troops to various places in Europe. But none of this worked. U.S. troops just wanted to go home. On July 15th, the division began to move troops back to the United States. 26 trains were used to transport the troops to Brest, and on July 23rd, they boarded ships and headed back to the U.S. The Marines arrived in New York in August. On the 12th, Secretary of War, Newton Baker, sent a letter to the Secretary of the Navy celebrating the Marines' unconquerable tenacity and dauntless courage. In this letter, he officially detached the Marines from the Army and placed them back with the Navy. He ended his letter with, quote, Throughout this long contest, the Marines, both by their valor and their tragic losses, heroically sustained, added an imperishable chapter to the history of America's participation in the World War. Unquote. World War I changed the mission of the Marine Corps. Before the Great War, Marines operated in a capacity like Continental Marines. They were amphibious and supported the Navy. World War I showed the world that Marines were capable of much more. On October 10, 1918, Commandant George Barnett wrote in his annual report to the Secretary of the Navy, quote, It was believed to be essential that the Marine Corps do its part in this war. And for that reason, I feel it was absolutely necessary that the Marines should join the Army on the Western Front, taking care, however, that this should not at any time interfere with the filling of all naval requirements, unquote. The Marine Corps would continue to find the balance of how to keep up with fighting land campaigns without stepping on the Army's toes and while still supporting the Navy. In 2018, the National Defense Strategy redirected the Marine Corps mission to focus more on the Indo-Pacific, which would require the Corps to transform to pre-World War I models. As a result, the Commandant of the Marine Corps, General David H. Berger, released Force Design 2030 to meet these demands. The Marine Corps had 2,461 deaths during World War I, and 9,520 were wounded. Marines received 12 Medals of Honor, 27 Distinguished Service Medals, 393 Navy Crosses, 351 Distinguished Service Crosses, and 1,678 French Awards.
The total number of military and civilian casualties in World War I is staggering. About 20 million deaths. 9.7 million military and around 10 million civilians. The Allied forces made up about 5.7 million of those deaths. The majority coming from the Russian Empire with 1.8 million. There were 21 million wounded. There were also 12 million military personnel who were either taken as prisoner or missing. The cost of the war was outrageous as well, and the gross debt of the United States went from $1 billion in August 1914 to $21 billion in January 1919. By the end of the war, the total number of United States armed forces who participated in the war was 4,339,047. Two and a half million rifles were made for World War I, along with almost three billion rounds of small arms ammunition. The number of warships even saw a drastic rise. When the war started, there were 197 warships. After the war, that number jumped to 2003. The Marine Corps had learned a lot during the Great War, and they would use this knowledge to improve further operations. Weapons would improve more training would be provided, and living conditions got a lot better for the Marines. The next 20 years would see its ups and downs, but was vital for the Second World War. Thanks for listening. Next week, we'll start discussing on how the Marine Corps spent the next 20 years. Welcome to this week's book recommendation. This week's audiobook is The Looming Tower, Al-Qaeda and the Road to 9-11 written by Lawrence Wright. This book covers the history of the events leading up to the terrorist attack of 9-11. This is a fascinating read. The author spent five years documenting hundreds of interviews from Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Sudan, England, France, Germany, Spain, and the United States. The book focuses on the people who created Al-Qaeda, and the information the author was able to get is amazing. He won the Pulitzer Prize for this book, and I thought it was well-deserved. It's very well-researched and eye-opening. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free copy of this audiobook and a free 30-day trial. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening and Semper Fi.